is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor at Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. What are we doing here? It's one of those questions we stop asking as we get older. Partly, we grow out of the phase where we're continually asking why about everything, mostly because it's annoying and not very productive. And partly, it's because we get enough answers to satisfy our baseline curiosity about the world. But mostly, we stop asking what we're doing here because the world is enough to our liking, or at least to our understanding, that we stop wondering about it. We don't ask questions because we don't have any. And not having any, we aren't seeking any answers, which is too bad for a lot of reasons. The biggest one is probably spiritual, which we'll get to later. But to imagine just what the price of not asking is, we turn to a, uh, an, an attitude summed up in an article from a book by Theodore Dalrymple. This is the nom de plume of an English writer who's penned a series of columns and op-ed pieces for newspapers in the UK for a number of years. He's a commentator on the state of culture and life in the British Isles, but his observations are germane to much of our own experience. He wrote one of, he wrote one of the many immigrant communities in a former industrial city in the British Midlands. He wrote about them. This community had received from the government subsidies for their housing and food, free medical care at the National Health Service, free education at the schools there, as well as subsidized education at the local universities. They could live in England with virtually every need covered by the state and with nothing asked of them. So when the government advertised that they wanted a fee for those going to the university so that rather than it being free, it would cost $300 a year, a riot broke out. The people took to the streets to demand the fee be withdrawn and everything returned to the previous arrangement. And when asked why they were in the street protesting, one of the leaders said, it's important for us to be here to demand our rights because, he said, the government does nothing for us. After a short time of receiving everything, what they received became invisible to them. It never occurred to them what they had and what it cost. It was simply there. This lack of gratitude is one of the major problems of our age, and it comes from a lack of curiosity about the world and how we live. We don't ask why, and when we don't, we begin to lose sight of just about everything as it is. Everything blends into the background until we just don't notice. When we ask ourselves what we're doing here, what we're really asking is what life is for and what our role in it is. If we don't know, it's hard to feel involved or feel like we're a part of the life that we're leading. And it's especially hard to feel grateful for what we have received and what we're a part of. This is epidemic in our society today and shows itself in everything from confusions about sex and gender to our general disdain for learning history and civics. We're just not tuned into the world we're in very well. And because we're not, we have a hard time. Actually, this follows on an observation from Pope Benedict XVI. He once wrote that there is no greater tragedy than living an uncalled life. And by this, he meant more than the traditional callings of religious life in the priesthood. What he meant was that if we are aware that we have been called to be a part of something in life, 
that we have a place in life, then we know who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. Now, he said that in the context of understanding that God is the one who calls us. There are two aspects about the divine that are vital to understanding what our call involves and how we are to respond to it. And first, we understand that God is present to us in the midst of our lives. God is not an impersonal power reaching through the energy of the universe to exercise the divine initiative. Rather, God is a person active in our lives and interested in the sum of our living. We're not left alone in the universe to make our way because God has acted to shape our lives according to the divine will, and we're invited into God's work in the world. So we're not ciphers or mere masses, unnamed and unknown. We're part of the plan of the world that God has in store. Our presence, our decisions, our actions, all of them are necessary for the outworking of God's design for the divine presence. Above all, We're not marionettes moved and controlled by divine power to do what God demands of us in order for the divine to become real. We are persons with capacity to reason and to decide and to act. Now, our lives are acted upon by God through invitation and initiative. God does not simply push us into our circumstances or drop us into the middle of our situations and then see how we will respond. We're summoned to become, to become part of God's will in the world, and that's done through the invitation to hear and to respond. What we're doing here, what we're here for, is to act in response to God's invitation. God calls, and we respond. This is one of the great themes in the Bible. It's proved to be true in the interstices of our lives. And secondly, the creation is not yet finished. We're part of the completion of what God intends for the world. And when I say world, we don't, I don't just mean the sum of protons and atoms making up the elements and energies of the universe. I also mean the arrangements of capacities and understandings and decisions that make the world of our involvement and engagements function. Our world isn't done as if it had been created whole and entire so as simply to become the hulk that we occupy. In fact, the world has been entrusted to us to be perfected and changed, to be built and rebuilt according to the goodness of God at work in the world. To be called and given a work to do is to be part of making the world according to God's design. Sustaining what has been made, imagining what must be made, and making that which is to be made, all of these are part of the mission that we've been given. Receiving a call is to receive a summons into the fulfilling of creation begun in Eden, but left to be perfected here. We're called to make the world. If we haven't heard a call, if we're just floating along, then we'll never have the excitement of knowing our lives are pointed and purposeful. And this is the heart of a lack of gratitude. If nothing is ours, if there's nothing that comes from the product of our thoughts and work, then there's nothing that we truly have. Because the heart of having isn't the accumulation of things, it's the gift of what we have received through what we have been able to do. Those whose lives are not the product of a call into life are those who are not aware that they have received anything or have contributed anything. In fact, they are bereft of everything. And it seems that is epidemic today, that we live uncalled lives. What causes this? First of all, We've given up on having anyone call us. 
After all, we're not just called by the Lord's own voice. The purpose we have been given comes from God, but the messages we hear are spoken in other people's voices. Unless we have someone who can call us, then we're not going to be able to be much of a part of anything. This means we have someone in our lives who can usher us into a world of purpose and meaning. Someone has to have the authority to call our names and to make us a part of something. It's not enough simply to discover a goal in life. That goal also has to be a part of something larger, or else it becomes simply a temporary excitement, not a whole lifetime. We're invited into a life by someone who has the authority and the wisdom to offer us a life. If we're not going to have a purpose, we're going to be, uh, if we're, if we're going to have a purpose, we're going to be called. And if we're called, somebody has to do the calling. This is a rather important aspect of our whole society because we are born to be called. Now, I don't know if there are neural pathways in our brains that equip us to be named. I wouldn't be surprised if there are. But I do know everyone in the world and in every society for as long as we have ever known has a name. And that name encapsulates that person, at least to the person. In addition to having a name, we all respond to our name being called, to being named. While we might have a studied, controlled response upon hearing it, we all know our hearts beat faster and our skin tingles when we hear our name pronounced out loud, whether the news is good or bad. Hearing our name matters to us. Whole societies are formed around this fact, and we should note societal movements are as well because we want to be called and we want to be known. The fastest and most effective way to create an individual corner of society is to give a person a name or to learn his name and call him by it. This is one of the things that happens in huge anonymous cities filled with young men who have no place in it or whose prospects are blunted. They're recruited into gangs where somebody knows their name and where they can make a name for themselves. Amazingly, those gangs seem to be near spontaneous creations springing up wherever there are young men whose prospects have turned them into blank faces. Since we're not programmed to live this way, we'll find the spaces or create them in which we're not anonymous but have a place. So someone will call. Now, our calling may be nefarious and the prospect's awful, but if we are called by someone who will call us by name, we'll respond. In fact, we'll respond enthusiastically. You know, the Marines know this. They teach their recruits about the value of their identity and the common bond they share. They know how to take young men and turn them into loyal and effective members who will share with one another because their names become important and valuable. In fact, they don't have a corner on this. Every subset of society and every effective organization does this, from the Zeta drug cartel gang in Mexico to the Vatican Guards in Rome. When a person is known, when his name matters, and when he's part of a group that has honored his name, that person will perform and persevere. The church is active and understands this as well. It's no accident that the rite of baptism is performed also as a naming ceremony. When a child is baptized, the minister ritually pronounces the name of the person and performs the baptism to honor and sanctify that person's name. The priest doesn't say, I baptize this little baby so she can enjoy the life of grace in Christ. He says, Helen or Betty or Timothy, I baptize you. The life in Christ is gifted to the person who receives it in baptism by being enrolled in the life of the church by name. This is also a recognition of the satisfaction of the human need. 
We all we have to be called by name if we're going to begin to understand what we're here for. Clearly, the purpose of life is larger than merely having a name. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the volume of names and the overwhelming fact of, of naming. At the Cenotaph in France, built by the British government following the First World War, to honor the dead who were killed in the Battle of the Somme in 1916, there are 50,000 names of British soldiers carved into the inside of that monument. It's huge, and as you wander through the open framework and see every square inch covered in the carvings, you begin to become numb. That may be its unintended purpose. Each name there denotes a soldier whose body was not recovered after the fighting. These men simply disappeared as a result of the bloodiness of the conflict. Their sacrifices were not anonymous, which is what the Monument Commission wanted to highlight by carving their names into it, but their sacrifice was extreme, the message which the designers hoped to convey. Swimming in the sea of names there begins to overwhelm after a while. It can be disorienting to the purposes for which these men lived and died to see their individual names carved out. We're reminded the purpose of life is not only in a name, but we know it begins there. And the other defining characteristic of having a life of purpose is to know we fit into a larger context of life and meaning. It's not enough just to imagine I have a reason for living and a purpose for getting up in the morning. I also have to know I fit into a pattern of life and meaning larger than this moment in time. There's so much confusion and life is so chaotic in the moment that unless I can focus on the long term, then the chaos of the moment is liable to overcome me. Even if I have a good sense of who I am and why my purpose is important, I have to be woven into time and be able to walk a pathway that's meaningful across the years. Ideally, if I am a part of the unfolding of years, then I'm able to make sense of the interruptions that will take place. One of the odd aspects of our need for context is the history invented to satisfy that need. For example, as the interest in the occult began to grow in the interwar years of the 1920s and 30s, many people began to look for where these ideas came from. It was all a kind of boutique interest until following World War II, when interest in black magic and witchcraft and occult began to explode. About this time, a book was published laying out the understandings and practices of natural magic and practical witchcraft, and its roots said to go back 10,000 years. Even today, it's not unusual to run across the claim that such practices have their roots in the deepest parts of the development of civilization amid the sunny glades and brooding forests of Indo-European history. But the truth is that the history was made up, and the rites and rituals described were invented pretty much on the spot by one man, including the rites for the claiming of feminine power and for honoring the putative goddesses of magic. It was all simply made up. But for the gullible, it was important to know that somehow they were part of a larger history passing through the ages, which is what they wanted, which is what we all want. It became important those that history passing through the ages because it had to be. Of course, real history and real purpose, they're important. Pseudo-history is like ersatz soup. It's thin, not very nourishing, and mostly serves to remind us of what the real is supposed to be like. We're hungry to know we fit into an ongoing experience of life larger than ourselves. We want to know our lives are touching a nexus of meaning and purpose we have received that is valuable enough to have been a part of someone else's life. 
This seemed to me to be an important part of my seminary life. In our main administrative building, where I went to the seminary, we had a long line of photographs of seminarians who had been educated there beginning in the late 1800s. I was always moved as I walked down the hallways and read the names and looked into the faces of the men there. Of course, they didn't know more about their futures when they were ordained or those pictures were taken than I did when I was ordained. In fact, as I look at their class pictures, I knew I now know much more about what their lives would become than they themselves knew. Since I know the ins and outs of, say, the class of 1932 and that many of them would be asked to become chaplains in the coming war. Or the class of 1961, who would be the last class to imagine the world of the church would never change. And on and on. But more than anything, looking at their hopeful young faces as they were ready to be ordained, I knew that what I was striving for was something greater than a mere whim, something more than the sum of the parts I had experienced. I was being invited into a life that mattered to them and to many others. I could be, I could expect it to be a life that mattered to me. And I have to know that the purpose of my life is something other than surviving. That seems obvious, although it's not always a focus in what we do. We all know we're not going to survive our lives. We'll all grow old and die, no matter how successful we are at putting off the inevitabilities of life and convincing ourselves that old age is for other people. And since we will eventually run out of years, the years we do have have to be pointed in a direction other than the mere accumulation of them. Because if there's nothing else and nothing more, then the years begin to become a burden even on ourselves. It will never be enough simply to look at the calendar and realize we've lived another year and we're still here. There's nothing more sad than to find someone who feels like the years he has accumulated don't amount to anything. Archbishop Coakley once mentioned to me that he had two great uncles who had been missionaries. One was a Jesuit in Florida when it was all empty beaches, muddy swamps, and dangerous alligators. The other was on the eastern coast of Central America, ministering to the forgotten indigenous peoples of that area. Both of them lived to be quite senior in age, and both of them remained active and involved their whole lives. Their lives were fruitful and meaningful, not because of how long they lived, but by way of the direction they were pointed. As part of these examples, he also mentioned the other obvious fact about their lives. They seem to be filled with purpose far beyond the difficulties and uncertainties we have today. From our perspective, it sounded like they heard a call, turned their lives over to the missions that they had, and set out to live that mission, and then found a lifetime filled with purpose and meaning. Of course, no life is so simple as never to encounter difficulty or never to have a question, but the fact they carried on in life to present us so many generations later with the gift of their lives so well lived carries with it the message that we were not simply living, that they were not simply living to fill out their years. Their lives were a gift to others and then became a gift to themselves because they lived for something other than life. They lived the mission of life that was entrusted to them. We're called by name. We're given a purpose in life beyond the limits of today. And our lives expand to become larger than the boundaries of living. That's what we're here for. As members of the church, we've all been granted the gift of a mission in life. Our, our first mission is supposed to be a witness to the good God has done for us by the gift of his presence in our lives. While this might, sign, might sound like a thin job description, it's the most powerful thing anyone can do. When we can testify to the power of God in our lives, then those who hear us can come to know the power of God in their lives. 
and there's nothing more decisive and powerful than speaking the Word of God in our lives. In fact, the majority of the movements that have grown up in the church in the last hundred years have at their heart this insight, that to speak of God person to person is the most powerful thing anyone can do. I've seen this over and over again through my involvement in the Curcio movement. A Curcio weekend is a series of talks given by lay people concerning their own experience of God in their lives. After the weekend, each person is invited to continue sharing their own experience of being called into a life of meaning and purpose. Now, this movement has swept through the entire church over the last 70 years and has had enormous impact. And this is because, at its most foundational, to come to know the work of God in our lives is to fulfill the mission we've been given. We've all been called. This is the gift that we've been given at baptism and one we are entrusted with throughout our lives. If there is some confusion about your own call or your own purpose in life, then take a moment to examine where you have been led in life. God does not simply cry out our names in the dark, but comes to us, reaches out to us, and guides us. Even if it's not completely clear where your call is taking you, pause for a moment and consider where you've come. As Father Thomas Merton once wrote, we often know the path only by looking back at where it has led us. Just know that what we're here for is to hear this call and then to live it. And there's nothing more powerful than that. Back in just a moment. final segment, Faith in Verse, we have a poem today called In the Confessional. To be free and to be joyous, these are the gifts of God to us, said the confessor at his screen to the penitent voice, restless. For we are given the grace to claim our lives in Christ, finally. All ruined in Eden restored will again align fully. So we're not left to float on the storm currents of the world, lost, but given God's gifts to calm the tempest's waters, bruised and tossed. The penitent bowed and listened to the genial advice given, sins named, numbered in the dynamic of offenses, shriven, but braced at the promise of such a new world thus so described, had thought of sin by way of other images in mind inscribed, was reluctant to embrace what was so genially offered, preferred to beat the breast of condemnation easily proffered, the paradox alive in the darkened confessional booth there, freedom reimagined, the gift of Christ to revive, laid bare. God's desire, he said, is to restore your life to life's promise. If God loves so as to forgive, this life is too large to dismiss. Go, knowing God desires what was given be returned to you, that the life first promised to our parents will be renewed. For your penance, then, pray that God make you as Adam again, free to gamble in the garden before the advent of sorrow and sin. That's in the confessional.
God's goodness to us is never exhausted and comes to us and is renewed over and over again in the concourse of our lives, no matter the situations that we find ourselves in and the difficulties that confront us. That's the gift that's offered to us and the true gift of God who reaches out across the uh, boundaries of our lives to us. So the invitation that we have is to trust in God's goodness and in his leading us. So as we, uh, over the next several weeks, continue to investigate what it means to be living Catholic, I hope you can join us. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.